Karina, and you are listening to The Planets Are My Gods, an astrology podcast that is out of this world. I had to. I want to do just a little bit of an energy update this week because as a reminder, Mars and Uranus are conjunct the North Node in Taurus. This is mid-August 2022, and I'm in the United States, and this energy is intense. So I want to talk about this energy, both in terms of how you might be experiencing it collectively, how we can see this mirrored in society, also about how you might be feeling it personally in your own body, in your own nervous system and psyche. And then my hope is also that in discussing these archetypes, there's something that's sort of timeless, that in being able to see the way that the archetypes are playing out now, the way that the planets are influencing what we can sense and observe now, it also gives us the opportunity to get to know these planets and archetypes themselves. It's, you know, any sort of astrology that we might be getting passed down to us that was written down that we have access to is inherently a colonial form of astrology. Even if you get outside of the Western version of astrology and you're looking at um, Mayan or Vedic or other things, you're still looking at whoever had the power within those civilizations to wield the narrative framework, to be able to write things, to draw them, to preserve them, to be in positions of power in order to disseminate them. And that's still, you know, not to throw any shade, obviously all of the forms of astrology that come to us through these also amazing guardians that have been able to preserve this knowledge and tradition and carry it through the generations, even under intense persecution and attack in all kinds of horrors that we can't even begin to conceive, right? Even those people that were amazing guardians for this wisdom tradition, these multiple wisdom traditions also were positioned sufficiently in uh, places of power that then probably by force of sheer necessity had to create ties with colonial forces in order to, um, maintain what they were able to maintain and pass down what they were able to pass down. And I think that's part of just being a lie right now. We kind of have to swallow the animal whole. Are we existing in the animal body as it is? There is no pure form of anything, right? Everything is this sort of complex mass um, that transcends maybe our immediate notions of good or bad. But I think an understanding that anything we might read or learn or ingest is coming from a colonial fountain, a colonial state of consciousness and a colonial history scarred by that history, bruised and battered and triumphant in the face of that history. That there is this way, you know, so much of kind of the mass amalgamation of all the data of astrology has been able to coagulate into general understandings of Uranus means this, Taurus means this. And those are so useful, right? Having our little shorthand of a few words of what any particular planet or archetype or house means is what helps us do the immense computational intellectual labor of even being able to use this as a divination oracle to begin with. So um, 
That's wonderful. And I just sort of want to juxtapose that with the fact that a lot of what is informing those groups of words of associations that we have is also from particular lineages uh, that are the contours of which are outlined by the historical exchanges of power. And all of this to say, this very long-winded rant, is just to say that I do truly feel that there is this other way in which we can commune experientially and personally with the planets themselves, that we can return to being, as Jason Hawley calls it, which is on the corner, you know, communing with these great energies and creating our own relationships to them that allow us to receive information about who and what they are. And one of the best ways to do this, I feel, is in looking at the transits. Because the more that you tune into the transits, it's like you're seeing these forces play out in the laboratory of your own awareness. And sometimes the way that I think a transit might feel, right? Like when Jupiter was in... um, Pisces. I was like, oh my God, Jupiter and Pisces is going to be just abundance and lusciousness and joy and maybe a Dionysian intoxicated, ecstatic relationship to the divine. It's going to be swimming in the oceanic frequencies of etheric O juice. You know, I had whatever it is that my idealistic association of both Jupiter and Pisces would be. And yet, I think after Jupiter exits, Pisces is a really, really good time to do an inventory, obviously throughout as well. But I think you can say, hmm, that was my idea, my idealistic conception of what Jupiter and Pisces would feel like. But what if now that it happened or while it's happening, let's really feel what is happening in the complex and multiple terrain of Jupiter and Pisces? What subtle things am I sensing that might be related or being sort of like danced with as part of this transit? And um, actually what I found is that Jupiter and Pisces had a huge amount of feeling overwhelmed, lost, uh, taken advantage of, which I feel is a shadow element of Pisces. Um, opening up to things because of romantic ideals and then sort of being hit with very harsh realities. In a sense, I think it was also positive in that it took potential tendencies and blew them up really big the way Jupiter does to see like, ah, here, here, I lost myself here. I lost myself. And then Arika had this great metaphor. It's like Jupiter came from these big oceans of Pisces of sort of amplifying and going into maybe all of these, um, you know, unconscious dynamics that are deep in the ocean of our consciousness and experiencing them fully that then allowed this little surfer, like an arrow to shoot out of the waves of Jupiter and Pisces. And that surfer on the surfboard was Jupiter coming into Aries, right? Drying off in the hot sun, having once again, that notion of me and mine and my surfboard and my agency moving forward on the waves, no longer in the ocean, but surfing the ocean, um, which of course has its own 
edges of fear of, um, those moments of realizing the uncanny intensity of full and total self-responsibility and how different it is to be in the ocean or how different it is to be the ocean itself than it is to be like a single surfer on the ocean, which I think is sometimes that Aries feeling, right? Like me against the world, me against everything. And some of that fight that Aries might have, I think is in appropriate proportion and measure to just the overwhelm of being an individual on a mission, standing before the fullness of the great what is. Um, so all this is to say that it's really great to look at the transits and um, something about Uranus and Taurus. So Uranus has been in Taurus, conjunct the North Node for a while. The nodal axis is thought to be the karmic and dharmic points of the moment. So that's to say that right now the south node is in Scorpio and that's representing all that we're coming from. It's kind of the karma that's being worked, the negredo, the raw material, the habits and ways of doing things that have gotten so ingrained that we've almost gotten addicted to them. And in order to maintain them have pushed so much into shadow and so much into dysfunction that now in order to shift the grooves of this karmic patterning, to shift all of the, um, you know, toxicity that we've been conditioned into and are operating out of unconsciously, we need to look towards the North star of the North node of the moving from the tail of the dragon to the head of the dragon. And it's 180 degrees across the circle always, right? The nodes are always complete opposites to each other. And to me, that is so instructive that the way to actually get out of what you're doing is to look towards doing the complete opposite. And of course, in regular practice, it's not like everything in the South node is bad and everything in the North node is good, but it is that you are trying to kind of move beyond the shadow or unconscious elements of your South node and to begin to pull yourself out of all of this, um, just, yeah, like karmic pattern patterning and bring your awareness online by looking to your North node, by considering to yourself, how can I use this knowledge of what my South node is to be onto myself, to see the unconscious behaviors that I'm doing? And how can I leverage that tiny little bit of awareness of what I am doing mixed with looking towards what I could be doing, that North node, the absolute opposite, in order to create some state of integration that allows me to have enough understanding to begin to make different choices, to open up my field for other possibilities. And the fact that we're experiencing this collectively means that we are all in this energy, regardless of where your personal North and South node are in terms of the moment for right now of what we're participating in. These are all of our North and South nodes and Uranus is coming and bam, hitting that North node head on. 
And what's special about particularly right now, it's just a shorter term transit, is that Mars has also joined them, adding, you know, fire to the already burning garbage fire that exists. So let's go now to how are these nodes playing together at the level of the collective, at the level of society. And I actually want to talk about Occupy. There was this big mobilization in the United States called Occupy Wall Street. It started in New York and then spread all over the country. And it was kind of on the heels of there being this horrendous recession that was caused by a lot of people in the financial industry making money off of people being poor and exploitation, essentially. So giving people poor credit cards and loans and then selling those loans to be able to, you know, rent out the debt and then be able to put stock options for that. Like they were creating this world that didn't really exist in order to be able to profit off of inequality and people's lack of literacy in terms of being able to understand things like homes and credit cards to begin with. And I think we all know that the fact that we're thrust into this economic system that is so intricately complicated, so unnecessarily confusing, that serves for-profit organizations with no education, right? It's, they don't cover this in school. They don't teach you about how a credit card works or how to start saving for retirement or what to do in order to get a loan. None of this is taught to us. We are just thrown to the sharks. And they are these rapacious, horrendous parasites that fed off of this energy, created this exploitative and extractive system, and then built themselves up by just profit gouging and profiteering so much that they became big and bloated and full of their own hot air. And then it was too many interactions, too far extrapolated and abstracted from anything real that the whole fucking thing collapsed. And of course, all of these big businesses, all of the big banks were able to get bailed out by the government. There's this amazing documentary called Too Big to Fail. And that's the sense that was being pumped through the media and the sense that politicians were who are, of course, also funded by corporate interests or racketeering, was that we need to bail out these big banks because they are too big to fail and our entire society will go into a tailspin if they collapse. And so these big banks were able to save themselves, wash their hands of the debt, and in fact, do tremendous restructuring, which many people think they probably would have had to do anyway. As automation increased, they actually needed less people to fill positions. They had less jobs available. And as technology increased, they needed less skill lab skilled labor for these positions. So they were able to do these huge layoffs of all these people again, then the government paid their unemployment or whatever, and instead hire way less people at way lower wages. And, um, get off scot-free, right? And there was all of these people themselves who were left with crippling debt, with no work options available, with only jobs offering that wouldn't pay a living wage. And so there were a bunch of folks who went out and were like, fuck this. And they went and sat in Zuccotti Park in New York City, right by Wall Street, and was like, you people, are responsible for this and you people should be accountable for the responsibility. And this system 
has not been restructured. This system has not even been addressed. And the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to keep doing exactly what you've been doing because that's how the systems are set up. You know, Malcolm Gladwell had that amazing talk where he talked about Enron and he's like, it's not like anyone at Enron was evil. There was no Mr. Burns in a lair wringing his hands saying, ah, yes, and we're going to do this and we're going to do that, right? Maybe there was at the very top a few people who were like very clearly out to just make as much money as they could off of like really short-term understandings of resource management. But what allowed the whole thing to run is that there were all these people all the way up and down the hierarchy of the organizational structure that were willing to make just little compromises here and there, just little twinges of their ethics, little tiny sacrifices of their morals, little known denials, little closing their eyes to what's going on. And the collective effect of everyone in a system being willing to compromise a little bit, take that system and put it within the inner internal logic of late capitalism, which is just to take, take, take and maximize as much as you can in as short a time as you can with no eye towards the long haul. Then you get the snowball effect that we're in right now. And so these people at Occupy Wall Street were like, everything is going to just happen again unless we change the systemic factors, unless we change what we value as a society, unless we change who's making money and how, then it's all just going to repeat. And I think that's really what we see right now is that it is all repeating all over again. It's like, just look at what's happening with the gas prices, right? We all know, we all know that these gas companies are making record profits and that the prices have not increased that much, regardless of what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine, especially in the United States, where we only get 3% of our gas from Russia and the U- if not less. And yet there's no government checks and balances. There's no vision or value system guiding these companies There's no thought for the collective. There's no um, understanding of the long-term impact of this uh, war profiteering. And so they're just charging out the ass for gas and it's affecting the prices of everything else, right? Food and this and that. And um, yeah, with no relief. So it is all happening again, just like they said they would. But what happened at Occupy, there was this brief moment where everyone was like, oh, right, we can just protest. We can just occupy. We can rise up and say no. And there was this glorious moment. I was part of Occupy both in the Bay Area, in San Francisco and Oakland, and then also up in Portland. I was traveling up and down the West Coast at that time. And there was this wonderful energy. There was workshops happening and things like gardening and gray water and actually doing financial education workshops for people. Folks set up free libraries and free kitchens. They were feeding people. Um, People were coming together, lifting each other up. Someone would give a speech and people would repeat their speech back so that folks in the back of the crowd could hear it. I remember there was like a 10-year-old girl giving a speech and she was just tears streaming down her face as like all of her words were echoed back to her. It was like 
there was this full sense of something was being created and there was this ability to model at the Occupy camps, a different way of being with each other. And then I was also at the Occupy camps when a few more homeless people started showing up and a few more people with kind of like extreme mental health conditions and then drug addicts and then more homeless people and more kind of violent drug addicts and more kind of really intense mental health things. And these people, you know, who are like young people, I don't think they were all, you know, super high socioeconomic position in society necessarily, but they were folks who were functional emotionally and, you know, basic need wise to a sustainable level. And all of that just got flooded And it reminded me of the way, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, but I've seen this in other cities where folks who are homeless tend to congregate around the downtown where the central political buildings are. It's almost as if they're trying to confront these institutions with their failures, right? Like it's saying like, we who are falling through the cracks of the system, we who are not served are going to place ourselves in your line of sight. So you have to look at us and not fall into some idealistic notion of democracy at work, but see the failure of what we call democracy. And I felt like that's what happened at Occupy is it's like, Ooh, you want to talk about relating with people different. You want to talk about new systems. Well, here, here is all of the failures of the systems that aren't working. And it was just too much. And I saw all these camps struggle and try to get trained really quickly and how to deal with some of these issues and fail. And ultimately, you know, there was also a really, really cold winter, but I think a big part of it was the presence of these individuals, the presence of the casualties, the worst casualties of the system were coming out of the woodwork and being seen. And we just were not ready to deal with them. And in a way, I feel like that is what is happening now, right? I live in Portland, Oregon now, and the homelessness situation, the houseless situation is just out of control. And it makes it so that you can't live in this little bubble where you think that everything is okay. Because all this shit that used to be so cute right? You go to the park or you go, um, walk down like a street full of little boutique local shops, or you go to your farm to table bistro cafe and sit outside and have a delicious brunch. All of that stuff is now marked by homeless encampments, by, um, just like refuse and garbage and burnt tires and people screaming. They also say like, um, the meth has changed, like the way that people, the molecular composition of meth, by the way that people are making it has changed and that's affecting, um, you know, just the state of people who are houseless and on meth. And it's really intense. Like I'm at my office trying to coach someone through a trauma experience and there is someone outside screaming, this woman outside screaming, you stole my food, I will fucking kill you. And then just making these guttural noises. It's hard. I had a friend come to visit. I tried to take them to a food cart and there was 
like food carts, right? Like so Portland cute. And outside the food cart, there was a person just rolling in their own feces and vomit. And, you know, there's no vision about how to fix it because all of the systems are so deeply mixed and entrenched, right? They decriminalize things because we were just spending millions and millions of dollars putting houseless people in jail for 48 hours and then sending them out on the street doing this stupid cat and mouse game between homeless camps and the police. That didn't work. But then, you know, there was a backlash from that, from the police union in terms of what they'll intervene with and won't intervene with. And it left a vacuum, but didn't put anything in its place. And a lot of these people don't want to go to shelters, don't want to get clean, don't want to be quote unquote functional members of society. Maybe some do, maybe some would want a house, right? It's a diversity. There are a lot of different voices there. But some of these folks are dealing with levels of addiction and trauma and mental issues that it's not just um, as simple, right? The shelters are really horrible. A lot of people get robbed and sexually assaulted and they have a bad rep. So we're dealing with anytime you try and pull a thread, it activates the entire interconnected interlaced systems that we're all embedded in a part of. And for me, that is what is happening with Uranus in Taurus. Now, what we're seeing is that all of this sort of scorpionic elements of um, manipulation and power games and the unprocessed emotion and who is maybe left behind in previous power systems, whose psychology and mental health was not cared for, what demons, what communications with the spiritual realms were not fully acknowledged and moved through, right? All of these shadow elements of the Scorpio, of this doggy dog world of, you know, eat or be eaten are like coming out, coming like pus from a wound, right? Like coming out into the open so that we can see it. And where I think this rubber hits the road of this, not just being a utopian notion of, Hey, can't we all just get along or there's beauty and diversity or diversity is a strength is being confronted to us right now by this Uranus, by this shock of reality, by this jolt that we all know Uranus can bring, by this trauma, by this like intense electrical, technological spaz reaction that we're all in, um, that is shaking up our systems, shaking up our foundations. And it's almost like, you know, the star intelligence of Uranus is trying to plug itself into that Venusian body of the earth. And it's saying it's forcing itself, I think, through our human intelligence to create innovations, to really rethink these systems and structures, to have to open our minds, open our ways of doing things, right? Taurus can get very fixed. I mean, it's a fixed sign. It's the earth of earth. It insists on earth. And um, it is like being just jolted 
into change and transformation by this Uranus coming over the North Node. And this is, I believe, what we are seeing in society. And it involves really harvesting the South Node of that Scorpio, right? The Scorpio has entered. All of the outsiders are coming towards us. And all of the ways in which power and resources and psychology and depth and transformation have been navigated are wide-eyed and here and present. And it's sort of like if we want to be able to actually ground into our body, if we want any sense of, you know, um, of that Taurus quality, of that Venus quality, it means really, really, really having to integrate this scorpionic aspect. And it can seem, I think, like Uranus is just giving this tremendous trauma to that process. But I also want to remember that Uranus also wants us at our most excellent. Uranus is also about optimization. It has that bird's eye view that is able to look and see and strategize. It is also the social scientist. It is in inherently attuned to who is outside the system and about weaving them back in. It is masculine Saturn. And so it's that high up perspective about how really can we bring down all the wisdom of the celestial heavens into earth. And I think this is happening collectively. I think the intensity of Uranus gives us the ultimate question, which is, are we going to focus our energy? Are we going to use the shock and intensity to focus our energy? Like that way, if you imagine you're going through something, you know, really traumatic, like, um, like a fight breaks out or someone comes and attacks you or you're in a car accident, there's the opportunity, there's the possibility that your focus gets hyper sharp, super specific targeted towards what is most necessary. That is an option in the archetypal pantheon right now. And I think the other is that it can get dispersed and distracted. Uranus is also the higher octave of Mercury. So it can be everything all at once and nowhere. And I think this state of being, right? Neptune is also in Pisces, which I feel also carries that double-edged sword. Neptune and Pisces can be this gorgeous transit, deeply connected to spirit, channeling, visioning. Um, Jesse Reed talks about the image setters, right? It's like the same thing with the homelessness. They took away the Mars. They took away the enforcement, but they didn't bring any new vision about how to do it. And so that Neptune being the higher octave of Venus, I think it's about being able to really create different ways of existing with each other and the world that are channeled from the collective highest good and that are seductive, that hold magnetic attraction and that not only leave us rejecting everything, but pull us towards something and that's one possibility of Neptune if we're able to be in that deep relationship. And the other process of potential in Neptune in Pisces is total overwhelm, just total overwhelm. Like we were talking about Jupiter and just being lost in the sauce of the ocean. 
So that coming into and that Uranus force meeting that Neptunian force to me is so much about our relationship with, um, not pleasure, but collapse and dissociation and distraction. It's our phones. It's the social media. It's being everywhere all at once. It's the five second news cycle. It's all of this data is just being pumped into us and pumped through us. And I truly feel that it is by design. It is to keep us lost in the overwhelm and unable to function, unable to gain that cool blue place of power where we can actually see things clearly for what they are and make decisions. You know, I, I saw this TikTok that was talking about the hole in the ozone layer. Like when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, everyone was talking about there's a hole in the ozone layer. And now you don't hear about it that often. And it is actually because there were like three major chemicals that were contributing to the ozone layer depleting. There's a bunch of stuff that affects the ozone layer, but there were three kind of big wins that were responsible for say 80% of it. I'm making that number up. And all the countries in the world got together and they made really strict regulations on those three particular chemical processes and actually enforced them. And since then, the ozone has rebuilt itself tremendously. Like, let's just think about that. There was the hole in the ozone and it was just actual regulation and actual enforcement banning just a few things. And now it's not like it's repaired itself. Like we've gone back to normal, but I think, I don't think we can like move backwards in nature, but we can move forwards. And it was been able to move forward and repair itself to the point where now we don't talk about the hole in the ozone layer. It's actually been able to rebuild. And so we just need to remember that like we can turn this shit around shit will rebuild. And I think part of the overwhelm that we all feel in thinking about climate change is again, by design, it's by design that, um, we think everything is overwhelming and impossible because we're being flooded to the point that we lose like a real overarching systems analysis. For example, right, in terms of plastics in the ocean, they just came out and discovered 90% of it is from fishing. 90% of the plastics in the ocean are from fishing. And so we just need to start regulating fishing in a different way than we are. And of the plastics that do come from human, you know, developed centers or rural centers or whatever, getting in the water and going into the ocean of that. It's some big number. Again, I don't know the exact numbers. I'm not good with exact numbers, but just like feel me for the shape, not the exact digit I'm talking about. It was something like 60% of the human litter and plastic that is going into the ocean. comes from two rivers, one in the Philippines and one in India. And so if we just changed our practices around those two rivers, that would be 60% 
of the 10% of the plastics that are litter getting into the water ways and the runoffs. And then, um, if we changed fishing now, it would completely, completely be able to change it. And so I just put that in there as a reminder, we can turn this shit around. It is like, there's so many possibilities and options. And I think if we get out of it, just being this one giant overwhelming mass and just think, what are the big wins here? And what really needs to happen? Things get so clear. And we talked about the societal level of Uranus, but I really want to talk about the personal level of Uranus because it is our nervous system, right? And we are Uranus and Taurus, right? We are some mysterious, animating electricity moving the earth of our bodies. This conjunction is metaphorically us. It is what we are. And it being on the North Node means there is such an invitation to focus on ourselves and on being able to regulate our nervous system to be able to get to that cool blue place of power where we can see and move and make decisions. My other astrology friend, Cameron Allen, is amazing. He was saying, uh, because I have worked so intensely with my nervous system for however many decades, I'm good now. Like whenever stuff happens, like, you know, shocks to the Taurus body, shocks to the Scorpio body, to our attachment system, to our survival, to our um, self-worth, right? When those things happen, let's say uh, you're someone you've been dating ghosts you or um, you get laid off from your job, or um, you lose your house, right? All of these are things that are happening to people all the time. Where it registers in you is in your nervous system. And I feel that what Cameron was saying is like, if I can regulate my nervous system, then I'm good. If I can check my emotional reactivity to the circumstances, if I am just dealing with circumstances, then I can just boom, do a systems analysis and boom, take action. Right? Which to me is not, which is mirrored in that Pluto in Capricorn to me, which is like, let's regulate our nervous system, do an inventory see what resources we have available and make the best choice for the collective overall, right? Capricorn is feminine Saturn. It's like of the earth. It's trying to understand how can we work within the limitations and resources of this earth, of this body? How can we, you know, navigate with care? And Capricorn is best when it's listening to cancer, when it's listening to what does the emotional body need, but not getting completely lost in it of like, you hurt me and you cross me or whatever, right? It's like in tune with the emotions, but enough cool blue energy to be able to make choices that actually then support processing and then emotions in the correct container and with eldership and wisdom to accompany it, not just meditating on the wound. And I feel the same about Uranus and Taurus on the North node, right? It's like, can we get good 
in our nervous system, which to me, at least in my little subgroup is everything that people have been studying, right? Why do you think we've been studying health and nutrition and how to regulate our attachment system and deal with our trauma and look at the vagus nerve to begin with? It's been training. It's been conditioning for this level of intensity to be showing up and to be able to be good, to be cool, to keep our cool, right? That Capricorn is like a very cool energy to me. Stay cool. And when that Scorpio wants to rise up and lash out, it's like, you know, feminine Mars, it's nighttime Mars coming out to kill or be killed. And it's like, no, no being grounded in the body, all of that stuff, right? All of those things that we say, they fit that North Node in Taurus, grounded in the body, centered in the body. Taurus, the priestess, Taurus, the dancer, Taurus, the cow, the beautiful, sacred cow, present and still and doe-eyed and able to digest six stomachs worth of being able to digest everything present on this earth and be good. So all that to say, we are in the absolute Olympics of nervous system regulation right now. But the key of the North node in Taurus to me is to be more Taurus that we're developing our Taurus, that we're trying to see where we are in our scorpionic shadow, right? Stuck in extractive power games, fear, scarcity, loss, fighting to be able to hold on to things as they're being ripped away from us. And instead to be able to regulate our nervous system, to be able to be our own sense of safety and security and grounding for what comes. And this might look really different than you think it does. I think that's that Uranus things is bringing things that are unexpected. You might be thrown curveballs left and right in the physical reality. And I feel like it is just getting like cuckoo bananas bonkers out there, which is also an opportunity to come back. Your breath, your body, your world And I know a lot of times that perspective of self-care gets criticized because it's like all you're doing is taking care of you, but it's like through the body that we connect to source. It's through being able to do this emotional regulation that we're open to an alternative state of consciousness from where we can actually act, right? There's no need to martyr yourself in the absolute psychotic information glut or like put yourself in an overwhelming physical situation that is beyond your range. North node in Taurus, that return, that return to the body as a foundational basis, right? That's why nervous system stuff all so often goes along with these journeys of embodiment, right? And, um, yeah, just a, just again, just probably one of the many reminders in your field inviting you to go in that direction and that we're all going in this direction. And as crazy and trickster as it gets out there, there is so much spiritual traction 
to be gained in working with your own system, your own emotional reactivity, and getting in touch with your own cool blue place of power. Uh, now, and I think for the foreseeable future. So sending you all lots and lots and lots and lots of love out there. And I'll catch you next week. Oh, 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 oh,